Now, we, uh, we turn back to the book of Romans. Um, now, guys, uh, for a good Presbyterian like myself, um, a good Reformed Presbyterian, the book of Romans is our book. Um, this, is, this is the place that uh, we, uh, we love to traffic in the, in the, in the, in the book of Romans. Um, of course, it is Paul's great theological treatise. Uh, if uh, it, it, anything that you need on the, on the part of Pauline theology can be found in, in the, the book of Romans. Out of the book of Romans, probably the pinnacle of, that, uh, of this book um, is chapter 8. For many Christians, ladies and gentlemen, chapter 8 is considered their favorite of all uh, of this of this favorite book, this is the favorite chapter in the favorite book. This is uh, this is rarefied air, guys, and um, and very frankly, you may not realize it right this minute, but some of the texts that you have uh, used to, to bring your own self comfort over the years come out of Romans eight. Of course, the uh, the one that's so familiar is verse twenty eight: "For all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose." And then uh, neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor things created nor things uncreated can separate us from the love of God. That's, that's there in Romans 8, and, and we'll get to it. Uh, perhaps you recall the, uh, the, uh, the part of, that's called the golden chain. Perhaps you were taught the golden chain in Sunday school when you were a, uh, a child. Well, that's found in Romans 8. Um, so much of this, uh, this stuff that, that has, grown, has, has become dear to us as God's people, as uh, finds its, uh, traces its way back to Romans chapter 8. Verse 1, which you will take a look at tonight, um, is one of those verses that is uh, so much beloved uh, on the part of God's people. Um, guys, there is a, in my, uh, I, of course I'm using this thing, uh, this copy, uh, this is a, um, a New King James, but there is a natural break after verse 11. Uh, what I'm going to try to do is make it through verse 11, not tonight, but before Christmas. Um, so we're going to get, uh, I don't know how many weeks, but we'll make those 11 verses before Christmas, and then we'll you know, take that, uh, that break around Christmas, and then we'll come back and finish up the rest of those uh, 28 verses in the uh, winter and spring. So that, that should keep us busy for between now and uh, next summer. Now, let, let me read to you only verse 1, because that's, um, that's pretty much all we'll cover tonight, uh, if we can make it that far. Um, but let me read it to you, and, and, and I'm sure it'll ring a bell. At least I hope it will for many of you. Um, it is, a, it is a, just a lofty statement. Um, it states this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, guys, before we dive into the text, there's a couple of uh, housekeeping uh, items that we need to take care of before we look at the text itself. Because as I read that text, some of you noticed something uh, pretty uh, interesting about your copies. If you've got an NIV, if you're reading from an NIV, if you're reading from a New, uh, from a New American Standard, you will note that what I read is not found in your, in your Bibles. Um, in fact, if you've got an NIV or an American Standard, uh, all you have is this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
The rest of us, with a King James Bible or a New King James, has a very lengthy clause after that, which yours is, or yours, and it would say, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, guys, this is one of those housekeeping matters that I wanted to address as we started because it, um, it comes up from time to time, and I think it, 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 it troubles many people who um, uh, have been trained all their lives but on no book but the Bible. And, by the way, I'm one of those. I'm, I'm all for that no book but the Bible stuff. Uh, you know, uh, it is the final arbiter of truth, and it's the final answer to, of our faith and practice right here in this book. But uh, to have somebody suggest, oh, well, you know, there's a little bit of uh, differences in here, um, disturbs people. And so what I'm doing right this minute is something I would never do from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Because I don't want to disturb you. But uh, since we have this, this venue, this forum, we can uh, take a look at the differences in, uh, in the translations. Now, guys, maybe this is new to you, uh, um, and maybe not. But um, uh, very honestly, what, what I hope to show you will, I hope will um, increase your ability to trust in this book, not decrease it. Fortunately, ladies and gentlemen, um, there are more extant um, manuscripts of the New Testament than any other book or any other piece of literature from ancient literature. The problem is we've got so many. There are literally thousands of manuscripts uh, from which translations are drawn. Unfortunately, I mean, the, the good news is we have thousands of manuscripts. The bad news is oftentimes those manuscripts don't agree. They disagree in small little places. In fact, if your Bible is like mine... Um, uh, over in the margin, you'll find something like this. There'll be a, uh, a uh, it'll be footnoted with a one. Mine states, in you omits the rest of verse one. That is, after the, um, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The in you omits the rest of verse one. Now, what in the world is that? Well, guys, the, the text that is, the most widely accepted text that, from which translations are drawn is what's called the Nestle text. The, the, the Nestle, it's a hyphenate, Nestle uh, Alain. I think it's A-L-A-N-D. Uh, but we just call it the Nestle's text. It's, uh, it's the manuscript that is the most uh, frequently used. And that manuscript uh, omits that last clause that is included in some of your Bibles and mine. Um, guys, let let me read you the clause that's omitted again, because I want to show you something that I hope will help you. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Did you get that? Now, if you will look with me at down to verse four, you will notice at the end of verse four, you find pretty much identical words do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit now guys i show you that to suggest this what most people would conclude is that what happened in verse one is a copyist's error 
That is that what you find legitimately at the last half of verse 4, somehow scribally got brought up to verse 1 and included, but probably ought not be included. Does that trouble you? I hope it doesn't trouble you because, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, when you find these scribal differences in manuscripts, uh, it is, it is uh, our joy to tell you that you'll find that, that I, I, I shouldn't say most of them, I would say all of them are things like this that do in no way change the meaning and the direction of the text. If anything, it's simply a repetition of a, of a, uh, a statement that you're going to find later on in verse 4 anyway. Now tonight, I'm going to treat the text as if it were there. I'm going to treat it as if it should be there, but in, very, in all honesty, the NIV and the New American Center are probably right. It probably ought to stop at the, at the end of the, or at the end of Jesus' name, Christ Jesus. But I'm going to treat it as if it was there. It's in my text. And I just want to show you one more thing like that, which I hope will give you a level of confidence and assurance in, in the book that you hold in your hand. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. These are some of the manuscript differences in these thousands of manuscripts that exist. And um, the science that is used to determine what should and what shouldn't be included is a science known as textual criticism. Um, But guys, don't confuse textual criticism with higher criticism. Higher criticism is something far, far different, and they're the bad guys. (laughs) Textual criticism is a a very um, wonderful assistant in our uh, dealing with and handling the Scriptures. But I want you to see this. Uh, This is um, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you. John the Baptist is speaking, and he says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I think if you've got an NIV and a, um, uh, or a, um, uh, well, some of your, your, your uh, um, translations will not have and fire uh, because most of the manuscripts, of course, it's in the King James and it's in the New King James, but some manuscripts leave out that and fire. Now, here's my question. The reason I showed you this is simply this. Does it change the sense and the, and the content of that verse? It does not. It is simply giving you a, a, a larger metaphor to describe the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when you find these manuscript differences, what I'm saying is there, there are things like this that in no way substantively change the text and the content of them. So I thought that was a little housekeeping chore that needed to be done before we dive, dove into the text. Um, I am going to treat it like that last clause is in there. One other thing that I want you to see um, I, I, again, if you will, I think you already know this, but words that are found in your Bibles that are italicized are words that are not in the Greek text. For instance, uh, in, in my translation, the, the verse begins with, there is. 
Well, those two words are not found in the Greek New Testament. It starts with a little, um, um, I, I guess you would call it an expletive, therefore, a little Greek word, un. Um, but in, in an effort to try and make this more flow more easily, the translators stuck in those there is. There is, therefore, when the Greek text starts with simple, therefore. Now, uh, I say that to say this. The first word is very important. But the first word is not there. <laughs> the first word is therefore. Because the word therefore indicates that what you're about to read, what, what follows, is, is an inference that's drawn from a previous argument. Guys, we talk like that. We say, um, no, you haven't uh, eaten your breakfast. No, you ate too much junk at school. No, supper is right around the corner. Therefore, you'll not have that. We do that. The What follows is an inference based on the previous argument. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that what you find in chapter 8, uh, in verse 1, and actually through the rest of the, the chapter, because the rest of the chapter is really an amplification of verse 1, but um, um, uh, what you find here is, is, a, is a development of Paul's argument that has gone before. Okay? Now, let me say one other thing, and then we'll, then we'll jump in. But, um, guys, um, in terms of sequence, chapter 8 really ought not be found here. Chapter 8 really ought to be found, or verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1, really ought to be found right after the end of chapter 5. So go with me to chapter 5. And let, me, let me just show you something, and then we'll, we'll move on. It is in chapter 5 where Paul finally introduces the great theme of uh, the book of Romans, and that theme being the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He introduces it in the last two verses of chapter 5. He states, Moreover, the law entered that, a, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the sequence of, of at least his argument. Chapters 6 and 7, as I've told you on, on, on a couple occasions in the past, chapters 6 and 7 are parenthetical. Once Paul introduces this great uh, display of grace, which he's going to expand later on, once he introduces it in 521, he immediately launches into some parenthetical argument. Having stated it in verses 20 and 21, Paul then realizes that he has got to answer a couple of questions that are going to arise as a result of what he stated in verses 20 and 21. This, this thing that he introduces in 5, 20, and 21 is so monumental that he wants to pause long enough to make sure that he answers a couple of objections that he knows will arise. Chapter 6, 
is a parenthesis. He is addressing the objection that is found in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, because this thing of grace is, is super abounding, he says in 5, 20, 21, then he knows that his audience is thinking, oh, okay, if grace is so great, then I can just sin all, all I want. He says, wait a minute, you misunderstood. And he addresses that whole mindset in chapter 6. Then, of course, speaking to a Jewish audience, their concern is, all right, then, if, if, if sin is addressed by this thing called grace, what about the law? And chapter 7 has to do with the law. It's uh, what the law cannot do. Um, and so he addresses those two issues in chapter 6 and 7. Then he returns to his theme to develop it further. And what you get in chapter 8 is the inference of the monumental sweeping statement that he has made in 5.20.21. You got that? <laughs> Again, 6 and 7 are parentheses. Chapter 5, the close of chapter 5 should be connected with the opening of chapter 8. And you got this parenthesis in here. Because what you find in chapter 8, verse 1, is the inference of the great truth of 520.21. You got it? As a re- All right, listen. Here, here's the argument. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, in light of that, in light of what's stated in verses uh, 20 and 21, in light of that, in light of this glorious truth that I just told you about, there is now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the inference. That's the conclusion that you can come to as a result of understanding the provisions of grace. If you understand grace rightly, it will lead you to this conclusion that you find mentioned in 8 verse 1. Okay? Now, um, what Paul is doing in chapter 8 is trying to teach the Christian how it is that he should think about himself. The emphasis is on this no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Of course, the opposite of condemnation is justification. There is none of this because of this. There is no condemnation, no separation. So, gang, the central truth of chapter 8, which I'll I'll disagree with some of the Bible studies you've probably been in in the past, but the theme of chapter 8 is not about sanctification. The theme of chapter 8 is about security. The theme of what Paul develops here, and he develops it for the rest of the the, the chapter, the rest of the 38 verses is, he is talking about how the Christian is to view himself, and he is to view himself like this. There is never, ever any possibility of him ever being condemned. 
This is about security, ladies and gentlemen. It's not so much about sanctification. It's about our security. Verse 1 is worked out by Paul over the next 38 verses of, the, of this chapter, chapter 8. This, this whole chapter is a part of, the, of, of a Christian's way of thinking of himself in abject safety. Um, this, this chapter is describing our legal status. And our legal status is we are in the position of no condemnation. For the Christian, ladies and gentlemen, uh, he is never, ever going to move out of that posture of no condemnation into a posture of condemnation. Even though he may do some things that are just really embarrassing, really bad. Even, you know, guys, I don't like this term. It's a good Baptist term, but I have to say my Baptist brethren are right um, it's a biblical term. It's the term backsliding. I don't like the term because it's been so abused. But uh, it is a biblical term. Israel is called backslidden, and we are sometimes in that posture. Even in that posture, ladies and gentlemen, we do not move out of this status of no condemnation. Even in even when our, our most our most embarrassing moments, and and the biggest failures that the Christian performs, he doesn't pass out of his status of safety, and that's what this chapter is about, guys. Not so much sanctification in general, but security in specifics. That's what this is about. One of the most important words in this verse is the word. No. It is a giant piece of negation. The Christian has been taken entirely outside the realm of any possible conceivable condemnation, either in the past or the present or the future. I don't care what it is that uh, you have done. As, as consequential as it may be to your family, your marriage, your job, your future... It does not move you out of this posture of being out from under any condemnation. Paul is not describing an experience. He is describing a position, a status, a standing. So, so the Christian should never allow himself or herself to feel uh, or to bear some kind of weight of condemnation. Guys, um, I'm going to read you something from Lloyd-Jones in a minute. That, and he, he asserts that probably one of the biggest mistakes that we make as Christians is not to fully appreciate the truth that's contained in, in chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for us. Now, should we feel conviction? Sure. Should we feel even shame over violations of biblical standards? Sure. But feel condemnation? Never. Never, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there is no, no condemnation. Now, there's another, there's several important words, but um, another important small word is the word now. There is, therefore, now. Which implies 
that there was something previous. Um, now, there's no condemnation, but before, there was. The implication, ladies and gentlemen, is that there's only two positions in which to be. Uh, one of them is no condemnation. The other one is condemnation. To be under the law is to be condemned. To be out from under the law is to be not condemned. There's only two postures, folks. There is a now, and then there is a not now. <laughs> that is, um, there is now, as a result of what Christ has accomplished, there is now no condemnation. But people who remain under the law, ladies and gentlemen, are still in the posture of condemnation. That's a very, very significant and powerful word. Condemned. That's the posture of those who labor under the law. Under grace. There is no condemnation. Guys, as, a, as an implication of that, what I have just taught, there is no possibility of you falling away. It, it, it amazes me that this debate is still being had in Christendom. Because it reflects a failure to understand the provisions of justification by faith. Guys, once I have passed out from underneath condemnation, I will never pass back under it. No matter what I did. As, as, as ugly as I've been, if I have passed out of condemnation, I don't pass back under it. Um, I, I think... Some of you would say, well, now, Jimmy, that's a little bit dangerous thing you're teaching up there, boy. I mean, you know, how are you going to keep people in line? I had somebody tell me that just recently, and I think I forget. I think my wife was in the room when they said it. And I, my apologies to Roman Catholicism if I'm wrong here, but I think it was a Roman Catholic who told me, that's the way they used to keep us in line. They just tell us if you do that, you're going to be lost. Well, you know, that's a, that might work to keep people in line. It's just not the truth. Guys, there's no condemnation. Dangerous? Yeah, it is dangerous. Every time the gospel is preached rightly, there's danger in it. The danger is in that people will abuse it and, and draw conclusions that are, that are false. But that doesn't mean we ought to shape it to, to keep people in line. No, folks, um, once you pass out from underneath condemnation, you'll never pass back into condemnation. You're never going to fall out of no condemnation. Did you get that? If, you're, if there's no condemnation, there's never going to be a time where there is condemnation. Now, and then the text goes on to describe kind of a why. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a couple of things I want you to see in that clause. First of all, um, you might be sitting there and saying, well, you know, Paul can say that, uh, you know, because he was an apostle, you know, because he was such a good guy, you know. Of course he can say, well, there's no condemnation for somebody like me, you know, as an apostle. But I'm not an apostle. And I've got some real stinkies in my life. 
the reason I do you notice what he says? He doesn't say, um, therefore, now, no condemnation to me who is in Christ Jesus. He says there's no condemnation to those. Anybody who is in Christ Jesus, all of those, there's no condemnation for them. Not just for the apostolate. Not just for the clergy. All those. All those in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. Now, guys, the, really the guts of the text, however, is to be found in this little prepositional phrase, in Christ Jesus. I don't know how many times that you've read this text, but go back and read it a couple of more because that preposition, ladies and gentlemen, is critically important. It doesn't say by Christ Jesus. It doesn't say with Christ Jesus. It doesn't say for Christ Jesus. It doesn't say beside Christ Jesus. It says in Christ Jesus. In now, guys, i got to tell you this little story, and, and maybe I've already told you this story, but um, if, if I have a message, it's, it's in that prepositional phrase. If I have a life's message, that's it. Right there. Right there. Um, I was, you know, remember uh, back in 2003 when I was in Hungary for those 12 weeks where y'all uh, uh, went on quite well without me, which really hurt my feelings. Um, but uh, I was preaching stuff that was basically uh, union with Christ. And after I got through preaching one, one Sunday morning, this man walked up to me, and I, I don't know who he was. I couldn't tell you his name, but he said, um, he said, you're reformed, aren't you? And I said, um, yeah, I am. How did you know that? I mean, I, I'm just here preaching union with Christ, you know. And he said, um, it turns out that this guy was far brighter than the preacher. He said, did you not know that the, heart, that the central theme of Calvin's Institutes is union with Christ? And I said, well, no, I didn't know that. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to come back to America and I'm going to get Calvin's Institutes down. And I'm going to find out if he's right. Guess what? Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know what Reformed theology is, here it is in kind of a nutshell. It's a lot more than this, but here it is. It has as its heartbeat one's union with Christ. There it is, right there. All those who are in, not beside, not next to, not with, not for, in. And then the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen, uses incredible illustrations as to, try, to help us get it. It's not that, you know, we're buds with Jesus. We're in Jesus. You know, I know that's, well, that's kind of strange, Jimmy, but uh, how about uh, images like these? Uh, the, uh, the vine and the branches. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a branch and you're next to the vine, you're lost. You've got to be in the vine. I mean, if you're a branch and you're with the vine, you're still lost. Because the issue is not whether you're with or next to or beside or for. The issue is that you're in. In. How about this image? Um, the body of Christ. That is, you know, we call the body, you know, the body of Christ. He's the head. What am I? Well, I'm in the body. I'm a part of the body. You know, um, 
Spurgeon was once asked, um, Dr. Spurgeon, don't you think that you can slip through the fingers of God and be lost? And he said, my friend, I am the fingers of God. I'm a part of this thing. I am grafted into him. Um, my favorite, of course, is the one that I came back and preached to you when I got back from Hungary. And that was this Romans 7 things that I'm the bride. That I'm married to him. That he and I are one flesh. There's certain intimacies that we share. And I know that's hard on you men. <laughs> to think of yourself as a bride. But that's what the New Testament says about us. We're a bride. We are, and you know, guys, I, I thought about this too. This is my own little perverted mind working. But you know, um, if when I married Susie, um, she didn't have two dimes to rub together, nor did I. Um, but if 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 she had been in a lot of debt when I married her, once she became my bride, her debt became my debt, didn't it? You know what? Once I married Jesus, my debt became his. And he has to pay it all. (laughs) Which he has, ladies and gentlemen. That is the fundamental. Guys, if you want to know why the gospel is called good news, it's not because you've got a ticket to heaven stuck in your pocket or you're sprayed with a coat of asbestos so that you won't burn in hell. The good news of the gospel is you are. I just want you to see it a couple more times and I'll quit. Um, Go to John 14 real quick. Oh gosh, we... um, I told you we wouldn't finish verse 1. John 14, and and two verses and I'm going to read you a, a story and I'll quit. John 14, verse 20. What a statement this is. Uh, Jesus says, At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Isn't that unique? You're going you're gonna to get this one of these days, guys, that you're in him. One other, one other statement, and then I'll read my quote and I'll finish. It's in Colossians. Um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here I am, you know, the bride of Christ, and we're both just kind of somehow stuffed into God. That's where my life is. My life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm in union. Ladies and gentlemen, the good news of the gospel is union. Can, can you see, ladies and gentlemen, if I'm in union with Christ, I'm not going to be ununionized with him. I, I'm not going to be put in him and then taken out of him. The theme of chapter 8 is safety. It's security. I've got to read you this, and then I'll quit. As I said, this is from Lloyd-Jones, and, and he's my hero, and uh, you knew that before tonight. Um, but because this is true, he says, the Christian should never feel condemnation. He should never allow himself to feel it. If we are Christians, your sins and mine, past sins, present sins, and future sins, have already been dealt with once and forever. Had you realized that? 
Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. We can put it in the form of an illustration. This is why I read this, because this illustration, I think it's good. The difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of any state and a husband who has done something he should not do in his relationship with his wife. He is not breaking the law. He is wounding the heart of his wife. That's the difference. It's not a legal matter. It is a matter of a personal relationship and love. The man does not cease to be the husband. Law does not come into the matter at all. In a sense, it is now something much worse than a legal condemnation. I would rather offend against the law of the land objectively outside me than hurt someone whom I love. You have sinned, of course, but you have sinned against love. You may and you should feel ashamed, but you should never feel condemnation. Because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I said a moment ago, but Jimmy, that's some, that's some dangerous stuff you're spouting up there. But, you know, once I understand the glories in it, ladies and gentlemen, the standards for moral behavior don't go down. They go up. I'd much rather, you know, get a speeding ticket than offend my wife. You know, throw me in a jail for a weekend, but don't break her heart. Oh, gosh. You know, I get a speeding ticket, I write them a check, and, you know, I go to their little courts, and I, you know, I bow before Washington or something, and, you know, it's back to life. But if I break my wife's heart, oh, my. That's the difference, ladies and gentlemen. Sinning as an unbeliever is like breaking the laws of the land. Sinning as a believer is like wounding the, the one I love. This is a relationship which can only be described as one of union. And as such, ladies and gentlemen, you're safe. Now go enjoy that. Our Father, I do pray that you will convince your people of the beauties and the majesties of the gospel that we get the privilege of preaching. It is not one that simply says, okay, now because you did something, you get to go to heaven. It's a gospel that tells us that as a result of the, the great provisions of the gospel, we, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, get swept into union with Christ, never to be lost again. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We bless you for the glorious provisions that are ours in Christ. We pray, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.